Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Ben Kay, and this is the Rugby Tonight podcast. This week, I'm joined by Hugo Monier for a look ahead to the final round of Aviva Premiership action before the international break. We'll get on to those internationals next, but first, here's a sneak peek of what else we've got coming up on the pod. Nick Mullins went to meet England's bright young hope at Openside, Sam Underhill. I think they said I can't catch and pass. <laughs> I don't remember saying that. Exactly. Okay, that's a but, misquote. Um, that's, that's fake news. Yeah, I hate that. Um... <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, I mean, it's probably like it's probably true. Exeter's informed wing Ollie Woodburn chatted to our very own Ali Ekin. It's an ambition of mine, you know. Growing up, it was a dream. A few years ago, you could have said it was a dream at the moment. It's, it's an ambition. I think I've got what it takes to get into that squad. Now, the big news this week has been the sightings of Dylan Hartley, Nathan Hughes, and Joe Marler for alleged foul play at the weekend, and we've had a good discussion on the outcomes of those hearings during our studio show. Here's the best of that chat. Some dubious decisions, maybe, Ben. Let's start with Hughes, then, shall we? We obviously know yeah. what he's had now, two um, weeks. Two weeks that starts immediately, so he doesn't miss out, which is it's great for Eddie Jones, great for him. This, I mean, I, when Hugo and I saw this, we thought this was a bit naughty. You know, he, he looks, he definitely swings an arm in there. Now, oh. for me, it's, you know, if that's going to be the, the benchmark of, right, OK, that's a two-week ban, I don't see why other people are getting longer now. He was in there for a, for a huge amount of time. Compared to the other ones, it was a long process. So whether they're taking into consideration his previous conduct as opposed to Joe Marlow, who we know has had uh, disciplinary issues, I, I don't know. But um, I think he's been reasonably fortunate there. Um, Joe Marler, so he misses the first two autumn games. He's back against uh, for the Samoa game, if selected. What, what did you make of it? Yes, yeah, so this is it. He gets held back a little bit and then he just reacts. It's a stupid thing for him to do. Yeah. The only point that I'd make is what he was saying to the referee, that as a, as a sport, if people are being held off the ball or taken too far past the ruck and then not released, so they're taken out of the game... If they can just get away with it and there's no retribution to the people doing the holding on, this is the problem that we cause. Yeah. So I've got no problem with Joe Marler getting banned for, for what he's done. Right decision. We're trying to look after people's heads. So even if it's not a great shot, that the intent was there, you've got to penalise him. But we have to have some sort of retribution and the referees have to be... The problem is the referees are looking elsewhere, so they're not going to pick it up. The TMOs aren't necessary. But there, it was replayed. You've got a yellow card. 
Rollins as well, I think. Yeah. More citing issues in this. Um, Hartley, um, his citing was dismissed today. Yeah, um, rightly so Jim as Mallinger well. Jim was raging, wasn't he? Yeah, and I don't blame him. It was a bit of a waste of time. We can understand maybe why they wanted to have a look at it. But we were commentating this game. I think he goes to make a clear out and Tamanu steps away. Let's put it this way. You, you, you hear it here. His eyes are on Tamani for me, and it's absolutely right. It's a yellow card. So he gets given a yellow card. Either is one of two things, a little bit reckless, and I think it's right to get a yellow card. He makes contact with the head. I don't think there's any disagreements about that. Or it's the best disguised punch I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. And it's just, it's just a complete accident. Yellow card. Should never have had to have missed a day's training people say to not, come down. People say it's not a yellow card, but it is because it was a contact. foul. He went off yeah, his yeah, feet. Yeah. So by doing that, it's reckless because you're committing a foul and you've caught someone. Uh, Andy, um, Jim Allender was kind of more or less said in the statement that he thinks maybe Dylan now is just being branded. <laughs> yeah. Do you kind of agree with that? Yeah, and so I think some, kind of, some player. of the players are sticking up for Dylan as well. I, I, I think he, he's being harsh sort of treated for, for, for his past, in effect, mm. and he's, he's kind of turned the corner. He's England captain. Um, when he's playing for England, he is leading by example. Um, it's just an incident like that is never going to help, help him, and, and it, it, was, it absolutely wasn't intentional. But uh, I saw Slim and he tried to get him back. Which <laughs> well, was, you was, did, and we've got, which, a, we've got a little run of it, actually. Which, which was definitely... Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, nice. And I think this is what infuriates players, that... Dill Hartley has to go to a sighting um, appeal today. Slimany, who's come through the side of the ruck and shoulder-charged Dill Hartley to the side of his head. And there's not, he's not even sighted. He got a yellow card for it. Them. Yeah. You've gone in with no arms. You've connected to this area on that player. It's a yellow card. This is a straight red card. Why is that not red? Yeah. It's a complete red card. I mean, and then what leads on from then, you can understand why players get frustrated because you see Dave Ward in the game on Sunday. Yeah. Well, he's now been cited for three weeks and, and you see this here. I actually think this is quite harsh. I really do. So he's been cited for going into the ruck, just using his head. But actually, I think he's just trying to burrow and yeah, get yeah. under Thomas Young. If you compare that to Slomani, who didn't get cited, and Dave Ward's now had three weeks, you can understand the frustration because yeah. there's such inconsistency. inconsistency. isn't it? And one of the big problems is that the Dylan Hartley incident and the Slomani one are in the same game. Same, same game. citing yeah, officer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if he thinks one is worth another look, he's got to think the other one's worth another okay. So, yeah, lots for Eddie Jones to ponder looking ahead to the Autumn Internationals. We were at the stud, Marcel Missalan, at the weekend. An incredible stadium, so atmospheric. But it was a game which had lots of quality and lots of incident. One of those big incidents was Morgan Parrott and the HIA. You were there commentating. How did you see it? Yeah, well, Ben Whitehouse, the referees, had a lot of stick. But let's be honest, as you said, almost everything happened. <laughs> you know, he couldn't have broken legs, head injury problems, um, sightings off the back of it, yellow cards. So it was a tough game. And as you said, that atmosphere can affect you. And I don't think his comms were working particularly well. So yeah, he couldn't right. communicate with uh, his TMO. He couldn't communicate with his fourth official properly. So let's give him that caveat first. I think, though, when we've seen the report come back around the head injury assessment on Para, they've said there's no case to answer that it was all handled properly uh, the independent review panel has done that so I think Ben Whitehouse will get a little bit of a rap on the knuckles not in a bad way because uh, the problem with all this is when we're trying to sort out a problem like how we deal with concussions the problem is it's out in the public domain and when everyone knows the standards by which it's meant to be done so people then 
and some of us without the, the the full knowledge of what's going on make our opinions and say well that should, who who's going to be fined who's going to be sacked for this when actually what we're trying to do is make the process better now what uh, ben whitehouse did was say he's unconscious to the uh, medics who came onto the field now if he the referee has a suspicion that a player was unconscious he is not allowed to come back onto the field so it's the tmo the doctor, the match day doctor, the independent match day doctor, the officials themselves around the pitch, and also the, the team doctor. If any of those people have a suspicion that was a, a loss of consciousness, he shouldn't be allowed back on the field. So I think he'll get a telling off for the language he, he's used, because actually a load of other doctors have looked at the footage and said, well, I don't think he was unconscious. And I must admit, when we looked to go, when yep. we first saw that, I said... I don't think he is unconscious there. And he rolled up into a ball with his face down, so we can't tell. Yeah, absolutely right. And just to clarify, so the referee does have the autonomy to make that decision and override anyone else on the pitch if he thinks that was clear. But I guess once he made that statement, he had to follow through, really. To be honest, and and we've all done it, haven't we? You stop a game in the middle of a game, you you sort of look for reasons to explain to everyone yeah. that... Uh, Especially yeah, in France. Yeah, and you sort of back-reference it and say, oh, he was unconscious, that's why I've done it. And, and it's just, referees have to be so careful with the language they use in everything, really, because it can set them up for a fall because now they're mic'd up. We're all looking at, ah, but the referee said this and, and you, you can't have that. Uh, you know, we see it, actually. The pre- premiership officials have got really good with using the same language. They've uniformed it across all all referees in a weekend. So you hear repeated things about the same offences and it just sounds better, doesn't it? So it, it's a learning process. You know, I don't, I don't think it should be a witch hunt. Yeah, uh, just to add to that, Ben, um, lots of people, not lots of people, you've had a few people like point the fingers at the HIA protocol. That was That was great. Everything was done as it should have been done. And I've been critical of that process. And I think... We're at a point now realising it's never going to be perfect, but you can see the investment into the protocols, whether it be for saliva testing and looking at other avenues, that it is a high priority. It's not a case of that. People are looking at the wrong thing. It was more down to the communication of the referee, and it's a learning process for Ben Whitehouse. I don't think he'll ever be making such a bold statement again. Yeah, exactly, and and hopefully we'll move on. Now, the problem is, I, I guess the other problem that they have is Claremont have history of not adhering to the protocol, and they were one of the teams that have been told off in the past for, for how they've treated some of their players. So now, as soon as this happens, everyone's going, oh, Claremont, that, that's that team that always always flouts the rules. Right, this week we sent Nick Mullins to chat to one of England's brightest young stars and a man who will surely feature in Eddie Jones's plans at some stage, Bath's Sam Underhill. The role of the six and the seven and the eight yeah. these days. Ben Kay has even talked about a five and a half becoming more apparent this season. How do you, how do you, how do you see it? Uh, I, I see it as a, in terms of the back row, like I see it as a bit of a balanced thing. I think you're trying to, you're trying to achieve something within a game. I think there's, a, you know, there's, there's so many different styles of play and so many different styles of player that I think you can find a, a balance um, that kind of helps you achieve what you want to achieve. Um, I, I, you hear a lot about the sort of traditional seven stuff, but I think like Haskell and Robshaw showed that, and I'm, I'm sure I don't know, but I'm, neither of them might describe themselves as, as an out-and-out seven in the traditional mode. But they did an awesome job when they were both playing six and seven. And I think you can achieve. Yeah, I think I think you can achieve a balance um, 
within within your back row. I think I think as a back row player, you kind of try to find your niche, um, and I hope that you fit the the sort of style that the team's going to go in. How much of that finding the balance? There's a compromise sometimes because if you have a McCall <laughs> or a Hooper or a Pocock, you can still play that traditional role, can't you? It depends what you define as a traditional seven. Because what do you define it as? <laughs> Busy, uh, like I, 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 like personally, I see the traditional seven as like the McCall mould of never really far from from involvement in the game um, and, and and tactically very aware um, and, and and a nuisance at the breakdown. Like I think I, I, I personally see, I mean from a from like a an outcome point of view, personally, I think the seven's role is should be to slow the ball down and to speed your ball up um, and and then to. The rest is, in my, is in my opinion, sort of a bonus, and I think mm. in the rest of it you've got things that make players special, whether they're a really good ball carrier outside of that or whether they're a you know, good ball handler or whether they're a good tackler, whatever it is, um, outside of sort of that initial breakdown focus. Because it's interesting, I mean, you're hugely honest <coughs> with this quote that I picked up this week, but I'm not particularly uh, quick, I'm not particularly good with the ball, I can't catch and pass. I think they said I can't catch and pass. <laughs> I don't remember saying that. Exactly. Okay, that's a but, misquote. Um, that's that's fake news. Yeah, <laughs> I hate that. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, it's probably like it's probably true. It's very um, honest, though, isn't it? I mean, your your, your qualities beyond that are, are are clearly therefore impressive. If you're saying that there's room for improvement in those areas, I'd like to think so. Um, like I think, yeah. I mean, I think every player would would have things they're not so good at. Mm. And, and, and significantly better at. Um, so I think I think being aware of those things is no bad thing. I think being aware that maybe if you're catching and passing isn't that good. And it's a, it, but there's, like you said, there's room to improve, which is a positive. There's there's room to um, to make that a strength. Uh, and and also I think being aware of those things is no bad thing because it actually allows you to you could be really egotistical and narcissistic and go I'm the best player in the world. I can't improve at anything, but yeah. you, you guarantee you won't be. Um, and I think the best players. Um, that I've trained with and, and played with and stuff are the, are the guys that continually work on the things that A, they're good at, but B, the things they're not so good at. I yeah. think, I think um, the way the sort of the league goes and stuff, I think there's so many good players that are always improving, especially young players, um, that you can't really afford to kind of stand still. Like, you've always got to keep improving because the game's evolving. Like, the game was, the game's so much more, maybe not more skillful per se, but so much quicker um, and more physical than it was. 10 years ago and in 10 years time it'll probably be even quicker and even more physical and the standards of the players have got to um, continue to improve to, to sort of meet the requirements of the game and it's what those great players it's what McCaw did you know constantly trying to change the rules to take him out of the match and he always found a way of wheedling his way back into it yeah well like you can either see the either see the, the rule changes as a disadvantage or you see them as an advantage because if you're the quickest to react to them then you'll, you'll do quite well yeah I think you topped the turnover list Last weekend in Europe, you always top the tackle list, but but the, the, the turnover list caught the eye this this, this weekend as well. Yeah, it's something. It's something um, I mean, it's a hard one. I, I never try and pay too much attention to stats because no. they show you a small part of a of, of a bigger picture. Like if your if your tackle stats are, are very high, that like great, but it's probably because that might be because you haven't got the ball um, and your possession stats are terrible. And as a team, yeah. you're turning over the ball and you're not winning it back as quickly or whatever. So um, answer me this, when you come off the pitch thinking or hoping that you've had a good game, what are the things that you've done that lead you to believe that? Uh, if you're not looking at the numbers quite so much. If, if we've won, 
probably would be okay. the biggest. <laughs> like the, I think like the, the the first game I played the Northampton game. Like I think I made I made a fair few tackles, but like, it was a terrible game as a team. It's really hard to like it's really hard to look past that if the team win. I think everyone would rather they sort of go unnoticed, but as a team we perform. Yeah. Um, than play exceptionally well or noticeably well, and the team the team lose. So I think from from a personal point of view, I see if the teams won. And then, and then, like then, you can you can obviously look into things like have you like missed tackles is a good it might be a good one, um, but then you might have missed a tackle and you've pushed him back inside and someone else has cleaned him up. Like I've never really been too much of a fan of stats, hence dropping the degree. <laughs> are, are we are we hoping to be part of the squad for the autumn? Where do we think we stand? I'd hope so. I think I think most players are hoping that they'd be involved in a set. Of, uh, um, I think there's an awful lot of good players out there. I think whatever. Whatever, whatever team, the squad, sorry, gets selected, I think English rugby will be in a pretty good place. There's so many good players out there in the Prem, um, especially like the back row especially has been so competitive this year that I think you can't really go wrong with who you pick. No, and you've not lost sight of the fact that it's what happens here on a Sunday afternoon against teams like Gloucester yeah. that in the end impact mostly on that. Yeah, like I think, I think in national selection is, should be a reward for domestic form, I think. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Good stuff. So we go Sam Underhill. He's been away from the Premiership a little bit, obviously cut his teeth at Gloucester, went to the Ospreys. He's come back in. There was a bit of vying for his services between England and Wales. Um, Do you think... Now's too early? I don't think so. Based on what I've seen of him so far, um, he seems to be that kind of archetypal number seven. Perfect example of your low chop tackle, but he does it with so much force. His first game against Northampton, 21 or tackles, every single one of those was impactful. So you can't just pick someone based on one game. I guess the reason so much fuss was made for him to come to the Premiership was because Eddie Jones had already seen that talent within him. Um, has Have we seen it all come to fruition so far in the Premiership? Well, he's only played in a few matches. Um, a player you've played with for many years, and Lewis Moody's kind of in that mould a little bit is what I would suggest of him but a perfect time I believe this autumn internationals and no disrespect to the to the countries coming over but if within an autumn series you're playing Samoa and Argentina then it's a great opportunity to perhaps revolve some of your squad and rotate and have a look at some guys and I think he is ready made to be uh, to be an England starter this autumn. Yeah, we, do, we don't know whether he's up to test match level yet we've seen a little bit of him in Argentina but you know, as a, as as you're starting seven the whole way through, we don't know. There's some guys that have, have done well in in recent years. I agree that you know that chop tackler, and that's one of the things Eddie Jones said. He said there's two types of sevens. You can either have the guy that's a, a very aggressive tackler will make the big shots, and and that's the role that James Haskell was was playing for him, uh, or you have that poacher. But I think that poacher's disappeared, well, not yeah. disappeared, but the use of it has gone back slightly with the with the with the new laws. I guess for me, what will be really interesting is the balance that Eddie Jones has. So how much will he rotate? And if he rotates, he's not going to want to put three very new, inexperienced players in all at once. So he'd want to mix up a little bit of experience and a a little bit of youth. But also, 
their skill sets. So if you've got a Courtney Laws playing six, do you want a Don Armand playing seven? Because yeah. they're both line-out forwards. So would you be better playing Courtney Laws and a Sam Underhill together? And then maybe Don Armand and, uh, I don't know, Chris Robshaw or someone yeah. like that. So that balance is important. Also the number eights as well. Are they a line-out forward or are they just a big ball carry? You know, Billy Vonapola, I know he's not fit, yeah. but you might want more of a line-out option if Billy Van is your number eight rather than um, a Nathan Hughes, for example. Admittedly, James Haskell hasn't had his best start to the season. I think that I think that's a fair assessment. With that in mind and James Haskell fulfilling that role for Eddie Jones over the last 18 months, is this a perfect opportunity for Sam Underhill to play? Would you play him against Argentina? At some stage, I would definitely give him a shot and I agree that Hask hasn't been quite the form he was from the Australia series yeah. when, when he was absolutely superb yes he had injury problems which does set you back takes a while to get over um, but I think you know Eddie Jones knows what Haskell can bring to the party we're two years out from the World Cup you can't you can't chop and change your team willy-nilly around a Six Nations the autumn is the only time to do it you don't want to be chopping and changing your autumn side in the last autumn series before the World Cup. So this is the time for him to do it. And so, yeah, I'd fully expect some players that we might expect to see playing in every game miss out. And not just the likes of those experienced older players, but also the Lions. You know, they they had a tough, tough old tour in the summer. It's an opportunity in a few of the games for Eddie Jones just to lower that workload on those guys so they're peaking for the Six Nations. Well, let's move on to the backs then. And earlier this week, Ali Eakin went down to Exeter to chat to Ollie Woodburn, a man whose stellar form has seen him included in most England selection debates in recent times. Personally, Ollie, your time here in Exeter has been stellar, hasn't it? I appreciate you served your time largely elsewhere with Bath in the early part of your career. But what, for you, has really been the catalyst to to taking off in the way that you have with the Chiefs? It was just a fresh start, really. I came to Exeter with a, with a fresh start. I could take on an even playing field with all the wingers here. So it was nice just being competitive on, on a normal level, I think. Um, coming from a club where you come through the academy, uh, you kind of always seem looked at as a young player um, and you sometimes hit a, hit a glass ceiling. So, you know, it was, it was just that, given an even playing field where I can compete, fresh start, a lot of confidence going into it. Reading some of the, the interviews that you've done in the past, you, you talk about how the atmosphere here is so so positive. It's an awful lot about what you can do as opposed to necessarily some of your deficiencies. Was that a big shift from from Bath to Exeter in that regard? Yeah, I think um, the coach do well, build a good culture here. They tell you what's expected of you, and then a lot of it's very player-driven. Um, they give you a lot of responsibility, which I like. You know, they tell you, you know, this is these are the standards you have to. You have to achieve, and then you know after that, the possibilities are endless. I do think I'm capable of achieving these things, and I'm capable of achieving more as well. So, what about the more, England? It's an ambition of mine. You know, growing up, it was a dream. A few years ago, you could have said it was a dream. At the moment, it's, it's an ambition. I think I've got what it takes to get into that squad, but I just want to enjoy playing for Exeter Chiefs. You know, we've got so much to achieve as a team. Um, kicking on again to win the uh, Premiership again. Just, Enjoy my rugby, keep enjoying it. Ollie, we sometimes hear about Sarri's trips away and their bonding sessions and other clubs that are doing this, that and the other. We don't tend to hear too much about what Exeter get up to socially, yeah. but clearly with every club it's really important that the players care about each other and get to know each other well. And what happens down here that binds you all so closely together? Um, 
There's a reason you don't hear a lot about our socials. Um, <laughs> try and keep it locked down. Um, there is a big emphasis on it though. Um, coming from other clubs, there's not so much of an emphasis on kind of getting together as a club, as a unit and, and bonding. We do, true, we do try to do a lot of that at Exeter. Um, Any insights? What do you do? What do you get up to? I mean, we know we've been, we've visited Steno's bar, so we know yeah. about that place. But I mean, are there special evenings that are, uh, that are yeah, dreamt up? Special or? quiet evenings where we get together, have a couple of glasses of wine, and talk over politics and business. Um, yeah, we like to have fun, you know. Uh, we like to have fun, we like to dress up. Yeah, fancy I'm, dress is a big thing, isn't yeah, it? Uh, I can't say too much, but uh, yeah, we like to party, you know. Um, the best part we had was after, the, after we won the final. We went on Saturday night, and I think we were still partying until Monday morning. So, yeah, we, it's, there's a there's a massive emphasis on that, and the coaches do drive that. Um, we, I think we talked about earlier about the culture and why we're so together as a unit. I think that's that, uh, that's part of it. You know, we're we're told to get together and to get to know each other and bond off the field and uh, enjoy life away from rugby. Ugo, I think one of the things that We've noticed, though, particularly this season, actually, is the strength in depth that England have in so many positions. My position, lock, is hugely strong. Yep. You know, we're now talking about multiple options uh, on the flanks as well. But one area that has been strong over the last couple of years, but we've added a few more people who've really come into form over the last 18 months is, is your position, wing. How do you see it? I mean, Ollie Woodburn on fire. Johnny May, you've still got everyone's. No one's talking about Christian Wade anymore. And, I know. And, and two years ago, everyone was saying, he's got to play, he's got to play. I know. Uh, yeah, it's an embarrassment of riches out there on the wing. You look at someone like Rocco de Goon, especially in the opening three weeks, you're thinking, he's got to play, has to play. But judging people just based on the premiership and what we see a little bit in Europe, I don't think it's enough. And I look at someone like Ollie Woodburn, statistically fantastic, scoring tries to find rejuvenated form down at Sandy Park. But. Does that mean he's able to excel and shine at an international level? I don't think it is. Um, and you're right, Elliot Daly, we're now thinking, well, where do you feature in England's back line? And he's a brilliant player. Anthony Watson, is he a fullback? Is he a winger? Um, Jack Knoll, who's injured, Ollie Woodburn's teammate. Johnny May's just nailed on for me. That's not even a debate. So, Denis Solomona, Marlon Yard. So, there's plenty of wingers, and I think everyone can see that. I don't think Ollie Woodburn's quite yet at an international level. I just don't think he is. Uh, he's absolutely great going forward. He's good in the air. He's seen that in defence and attack. His kicking game's OK. In his positional sense, I think he switches off just a little too much. And I go back to the Six Nations three years ago. For two seasons in a row, the Six Nations was won on points difference. And so that means stupid penalty a switch off and defense or attack that's the difference between you winning the six nations and losing and they're the margins i think where i'm hypercritical over players come to world cup we see what a disaster 2015 is and i need to trust players enough for them to be able to do a job but not just do a job but excel at that level i'm not quite sure if he's there but ben tell me am i being a bit oh, harsh i don't think you are i think particularly you know if you, you look at all international coaches actually whereas the public will always scream for people that can score wonder tries. And yes, being able to score a try out of nothing is uh, is a, obviously a huge fact because international rugby is more difficult to score tries. But all the coaches I've spoken to, their biggest concern about the wingers, because I, maybe because you're out there on the wings and you're not involved in the game all the time, but there's two things that they all, always keeps coming back up. How many mistakes does this person make? And... 
how much, how hard do they work? Do they go hunting for the ball? And Jack Knoll is a is a bit of a coach's dream, isn't yeah. he? Because he will go off. Johnny Mays certainly started doing that this year. You know, if you see that him sort of following in the breakdowns and looking to pick and go. So I wonder whether that's something that's been mentioned to him by the likes of Eddie Jones. I want to see you getting off your wing. I don't. But they have to be able to finish uh, as well. And and you know, not all those players get the opportunity to to highlight their wares as a finisher because of the teams that they play in so oh it's it's fascinating for me could you would you would have you thought about it who who would you have would you have the same guys for the whole autumn or would you try some different guys i would, I would try I'd, I'd mix it up a little bit um the first test argentina i'd have johnny may on the left wing i don't think there's any debate over that i'd have anthony watson on the right and i'd have mike brown at fullback but then just to your point of what you were talking about, James Haskell, I think Eddie Jones clearly knows what he's going to get from Mike Brown as well. Um, we're talking about a condensed international tournament being the World Cup where you may have a five-day turnaround. So I'd also quite like to have a look at Anthony Watson at fullback and perhaps give another winger an opportunity, whether that's Donny Solomona. We still don't know at time recording who's going to be in the EPS, so hard to make a judgment. But I would like to just tinker. In the same way we're talking about the back row, I'd like to tinker with that back three as well because... What we are seeing of a lot of these wingers, they do have the capability to be able to play fullback. And with that rotation policy during a, a World Cup cycle, I want to know who I can have on the bench, who can play there. It could be Elliot Daly at fullback, for example. So I wouldn't have Ollie Woodburn in the squad, but that's not to say he's not a good enough player. I just think we have lots of other guys that have their feet under the table, not comfortable because Eddie Jones doesn't like that word, but I'd, I'd, be, I'd be having a look at the other options before I got to him. We've looked at the outside backs then. Um, there's still a lot of decisions to be made further in field, aren't there? I, th I think Ben Youngs is pretty nailed on as the starter, though, again, we'll probably share some of the game time, share some of the load. Didn't go to uh, New Zealand with the Lions. Um, but 10, 12 and 13, fascinating, really, because George Ford starting to pull the strings at Leicester. Yep. He's, he's obviously done a job for Eddie Jones before, but Owen Farrell's... Um, <laughs> You know, want it playing so well at 10 and controlling the game at 10 for Saracens. And then who do you play in the 13th slot? It's really difficult, I think, just for the sake of, not just for the sake of continuity, because form comes into it and George Ford is thoroughly deserving. But Ben and Fordy have played so well together. That's for 9 and 10. What he does at 12 and 13, he's clearly, I think, going to change during the Autumn Internationals. Farrell, I think, will play the first game. Um, brilliant at 10. Um, and I think Fordy will feel so comfortable having that type of player he's been so used to in Matt Tamua. And so nothing really changes there. Who you play at 13 is a really interesting debate. You've got Jonathan Joseph, who's come back with his Lions pedigree and experience, but not playing brilliantly well, I don't think, for Bath. I mean, Eddie Jones gave him a kick up his backside just not so long ago, dropping him from that, um, from that training squad. So for me, the person on form and deserves a shot is Henry Slade. But then as we go through the autumn series, how does he mix and match it? I wouldn't be surprised if Marcus Smith is in the squad, but I don't think he'll play at all. I just think he might pull him in just so he immerses himself in that experience. He's not a starter for me. He just doesn't feature. But then do you look at the likes of Alex Ozoski? And if so, in what position? Is it 12? Is it 10? Because will George Ford play all three games at 13? I think Henry Slade is your top, top dog. Um, Jonathan Joseph has to feature, but... 
I guess the only reason we're having these debates is because we've got so many options and because so many of these players have had a huge amount of workload over the recent few months that he's going to have to look after their best interests but also give everyone an opportunity. Again, it goes back to that balance I was talking about with the back row because if you've got a ball player like Henry Slade at 13, do you match him with a Bentio who can do the direct work? Because it does that look a bit lightweight if you've got Farrell and um, uh, Slade in the centres with George Ford there as well. Who's who's going to give you that forward momentum when, when there's not much on? So that, that'll be massively interesting, whether he gets that balance of, of, of different players, big ball carriers with, with a 13 with the distribution skills of Henry Slade. Pop quiz question for you, Ben. What was the um, Stuart Lancaster's last game for England, Uruguay, Manchester? Name his 10, 12, 13 that day. Now... Teo and Slade in there somewhere. No? Slade, yep. Slade was. Uh, Farrell, Ford and Slade. How ironic. There you go. That could be... Against the might of Uruguay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've proven me wrong there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's all very good having all those options. But if you change it too often, you never actually find out enough about them. So... You don't want to be giving someone a shot, but giving them not enough time to prove themselves and then writing them off and pigeon yeah. pigeonholing them. They're not international level. Yeah. So very, very difficult. If you fancy yourself as a bit of a pundit, you can play along with the BT Sport Predictor game for free, where you can guess the scores from each weekend's Aviva Premiership matches. For more details and full terms and conditions, go to btsport.com forward slash predictor. Right. The games from this weekend, we're back to the Premiership. The European travels are over with. Some of the teams obviously have had harder games than others. Um, we start on Friday night with the game that's on BT Sport 1 and 4K UHD at 7pm. That's Sale Sharks at home to Exeter Chiefs. How do you see this one going? <laughs> do you know what? Traditionally, I'd say it's a really tough game to call because of Sale Sharks' home form. And the last time they played at home was up against Toulouse, 20 or draw, which was brilliant. They were saying they were robbed of their um, victory against Lyon, um, losing in a quite inconspicuous circumstances. But for Exeter, them beating Montpellier away, it's got to be their best ever away victory in Europe. Just sensational form. And I think they're at a point now where they have so much belief and confidence in the style in which they play that it's not just a game which is isolated for Sandy Park. It's they take it on the road anywhere. Regardless of weather conditions or location, they back themselves. So without giving it away, because um, I haven't done my predictor yet, but Exeter have got to be going up there pretty confident. How about I, yourself? I, I totally agree with you. I think... Um, you know, Steve Diamond will probably be saying, "Oh, brilliant time to play them." Their confidence is sky high. They, they think they're going to come up here and steamroller us and try and work his troops up like that. Yeah. I also think if you look back to Sales' big win just before the end of the, the just before the European yeah, break, yeah. where did that come from? A lot of loose passes yeah. and um, and the like. And I just don't think Exeter play that looser rugby yes they play attacking rugby but they are a lot more accurate and and i just think that as you said that confidence boost of that that they will be on they'll be on a massive high now and that will give them an extra three weeks of of confidence before it starts to wane so um as long as they didn't celebrate too hard on the way home which i'm sure they're very professional and didn't i would back you with exeter Okay, well, Saturday, Northampton Saints against Wasp, which is on BT Sport 2, 4K UHD at 2.30. Huge game for Saints. Yeah, it is. Um, 
mainly because of what happened when Saracens went there in Europe in the first weekend and thrashed them again. Um, but I think they'll be in a pretty good place because they effectively know they're as good as out of Europe. Yeah. Uh, but their performance in Claremont, despite them losing quite heavily, was a strong performance. And they came back from... Uh, you know, they, they they played well despite conceding some some tries yeah. early on. They didn't it they didn't capitulate as we thought they might do after what happened the week before. Wasps are are in danger, and I'm sure that, you know Dai Young wouldn't say this, but of oh thank goodness it's all all right. We've won and we've beaten Harlequins, and 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 thinking that everything's solved, which. Uh, you know, I've, we, we've probably both played in teams a bit like that, where you get that inconsistency of yep. <laughs> up and down because you think it's all solved, but actually some of the fundamental problems are, are still there, which need to be solved. So if this was at the Rico, I'd back Wasps, but I think Saints will, they need to win. They're in, you know, they're, they're, this could, the wheels could come off their season if they if they don't start winning again, having been in such a good position after the first weekend. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I think with Saints losing their opening two games, it's probably just narrowed their focus on the Premiership as well. And you forget, actually, despite what's happened for them the last couple of weeks, they're still third in the Premiership, yeah. so, it's, so, so they're flying high. So this has got to be a priority for Wasps. They did look rejuvenated against Harlequins, over 40 points scored, but still a little bit of frailty there. And going away to Saints is... Uh, is, it's, is, is it's a, the is worst possible ask. team for Wasps <laughs> yeah. to play as well, isn't it? Because we know how Saints like to play at Franklin's Gardens. And Wasps grew into that game because the game opened up like like it did for them last year. If, they, if the game doesn't open up for Wasps, you, you, you can't see where they're going to kickstart the game. They're not going to you wouldn't say they're going to arm wrestle uh, Saints at Franklin Gardens. No. The other Saturday games are Harlequins against Worcester and Saracens at London Irish. So you'd probably be looking at two home victories there, wouldn't you have thought? I think you would get fairly long odds, <laughs> particularly <laughs> trying to do that as a as a double. <laughs> <laughs> we might not be here next week if, we, oh if that comes gosh, in. Yeah. Um, yeah, but look, despite... Um, a decent performance by London Irish in yeah. Europe. Um, but Saracens just look supremely confident again. And Harlequins, they'll want to bounce back. But at home, you just can't see Worcester upsetting the odds at the moment. And then Sunday, uh, BT Sport won again and 4K UHD from 2.30. Bath against Gloucester, the West Country derby. It's a huge, it's a huge game, emotional affair. But hey, we we enjoy stats. Well, I, I certainly enjoy stats. And you look at it, Gloucester won all their home and lost all their away. But you kind of rip that up a little bit when it's a derby match because it has a bit of a grudge feel about it, and it doesn't just mean a bit more to you. It means so much more to everyone else that's in attendance or watching it at home. Um, but Bath, Bath would be absolutely thrilled uh, their away performance to Scarlets, the Pro 14 champions. That's a massive result. You could just see what it meant to Todd Blacker and Toby Booth, guys that are fairly unemotional when they really celebrated it. As well as that, a huge working cog in that win was Rhys Priestland, who'd been banished from the, from the Wales team for a couple of years now. And his inclusion would have just given him a little bit of an adrenaline shot into his confidence. And so um, with him playing so well at the moment, Bath at home, brilliant support. You expect him to win. I agree. I think Gloucester would need a, a huge start uh, to, to get the confidence into the game that actually we can come here. But then it's that ability to maintain that and that's the problem when you when you don't trust your away form 
the crowd, everything can have an effect on you. And um, yeah, there's some there's some decent battles in there. We might see uh, Falatau uh, against Ackerman. That would be yeah. something that'd be worth the admission fee. Um, but I, I I think Bath at home, despite it being a derby and and, and all other things go out of the window. I think Bath at home. Side question. Um, we, we we didn't mention Henry Trinder at all in our centre in our centres debate, and he comes up against Jonathan Joseph this weekend, which is a, a great mini battle within that battle as well. Where do you see Henry Trinder placed? Because he's now had a, a long run of form, playing really well in a side which has fluctuated. I I still think because of his injury profile, I think he's going to have to have a year yep. of playing uninterrupted Premiership rugby before the likes of Eddie Jones goes, I can't take a gamble in wasting game time on him because he might not be there. He might not be resilient enough. Now, that might sound very unfair, but until you prove yourself at international level, that, that tends to be the, the situation. And you know, we saw it with James Simpson, Daniel, a guy yeah. who every time a squad was announced, everyone's going, oh, he's got to be in. And then suddenly he'd break down. He never got that opportunity to, to prove himself at international level. And then one other game, Oogs, uh, Leicester are away at Newcastle. Different sort of Newcastle at the moment under Dave Walder, throwing it about a lot more. Yeah, they, they're loving that 4G pitch. They've got a beautiful surface to play and they've, you know, Dean Richards has uh, compiled a team together that are born to run. Um, play some really good rugby. Um, it's actually, that's probably one of the harder games to actually call this weekend because Leicester thrilled. What a massive result that was against Castro at the weekend. But they'll be going up with a huge amount of confidence as with Newcastle. Um, should we toss a coin for this one? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Again, it's it's just one of those games where it depends how the game goes and, and you literally can't say. If, if Newcastle get on that roll, very, very difficult to stop up there. Leicester without Matt Tamua, that might be a, a, a big swing in, in Newcastle's favour. So um, he, he's out with an injury, not as not serious as, as first thought. Uh, Leicester have said today that it's bone bruising, but, but weeks rather than... You know, yeah. you touch and go this 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 weekend. So um, that's a that's that's a challenge that Leicester will have to live up with. I think you'll see uh, Newcastle trying to pick the tempo up at every opportunity. I think Leicester might play slightly more conservatively than they have in or than they've been trying to do all season. But then when they get the opportunities with the pace they've got out wide in Johnny May and and Veano, they will try to exploit it, but I think they wouldn't want it to be a game of sevens because of how Newcastle are playing. Right, well, thanks for listening to the Rugby Tonight podcast. Rugby Tonight on tour returns next week as Ugo and Martin Bayfield spend an evening with Billericay FC, which no doubt will be a quiet one. And I'll be joined by Austin Healy on the pod to discuss all of the week's big talking points. Remember to subscribe to the pod so it's delivered straight to your device every Thursday. If you've enjoyed listening today, please give us a five-star rating and a nice review on iTunes. Bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.